This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the Bloomberg Business Week weekend podcast. In this episode, we'll bring you insights from the magazine and so much more. It's the Heist Issue, our annual look at some of the world's biggest thefts and scams. We'll hear how to rob a train and hack a hotel. Well, don't really do it, but this is kind of fun stuff. Exactly. Plus, we bring you the story of a man, well, he couldn't stop robbing banks. And we also profile the king of snitches. So the Heist Double Issue, second annual one, a variety of stories that will keep you engaged, entertained, and talking about all of them with your friends. We have the chief architect here, Max Chafkin, features editor of the magazine. How do you even start to put together an issue like this? Uh, By the way, you got promoted. The the, the Heist got promoted this year from a few stories last year to you took over the whole issue. You you pulled off a heist of your own. This is, I did. Uh, This is our our summer reading issue. The idea is to give people... People kind of a different experience. The news news cycle slows down. We hope uh, uh, while everyone's you know going to the beach or whatever uh, around the Fourth of July. And so these are our sort of true crime stories. La- last year's heist issue, if you remember, was uh, was very heisty. This one, you know, all the stories involved uh, a thing getting stolen. This one is a little bit more expansive. It includes heists, but also scams, frauds, uh, you know, other forms of uh, skull duggery. And we've even have a, a service component that that uh, tell you. You, the reader, how to pull off your own heist? <laughs> yeah, how to notes. how to fix a soccer match, how to rob a train, how to get into a college, how to get into college. Uh, there's amazing. a disclaimer, which is that this is you know we're being tongue in cheek, but but the <laughs> idea is to is to show people how some of these uh, these bad stuff this bad stuff happens. Well, I'm always curious about like the conversations you guys have in a newsroom when you're going into an issue like this. And when did you start? Like a year ago? Uh, we started. I mean, we started thinking about it uh, for sure a year ago. And, and in fact, uh, I think at least one of these stories has been in the works for at least a year. Yeah. But but in in more seriously, you know, probably four or five months ago, yeah. basically at the beginning of it, of of um. 2019. And uh, yeah, sorry, go. And and so what's the through line? Like, you know, what are you looking for as you try and, you know, kind of create an arc for this? Or when someone comes to you with a pitch, ha- what's the thing you're looking for? Yeah, I was that looking, works, that does it. <laughs> yeah, I was looking for stories that are true and um, involving something nefarious. Uh, so basically true crime with with some variety of, of, of different kinds of crimes. So we have some stuff that's really serious and, 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 Tra- and tragic, uh, to be frank, but also some stuff that's a little more silly, like the uh, the model train robbery. Well, I mean, the bank robbery story, yeah. I feel like, is one of the more multifaceted heist stories I've ever written because it's a human story. You know, it's about the opioid crisis in in many ways at its core, um, also about a bank robbery. And so you go into it and it's a little bit of a... Head fake in, in in some sense. Yeah, I mean it's an addiction story, you know, in mm-hmm. both senses. He's he's obviously addicted to um, opioids, as you say, but he sort of becomes addicted to uh, robbing banks, and and it has this kind of you know amazing. Uh, sort of quality where, where where things are just piling one on top of the other and, and hopefully people won't be able to put it down. Right. I was thinking about, because then we're going to spread the stories over a couple of weeks of shows here at Bloomberg, but I did think about the story in Mexico with the fuel pipeline. I mean, that just mm. was hard to just get my head around. Yeah, we've been, uh, you know, obviously uh, Bloomberg's been covering this story, yeah. the, the Huachicoleos uh, in Mexico. These are the fuel thefts. Um, this was an incident um, that happened earlier this year in which almost 140 people died mm-hmm. in an explosion. It was it was awful and tragic and kind of shows, uh, you know, I don't know, a dark side of, 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 these, um, of these high stories. Right. And meanwhile, you know, we look at the the story about 
I think you actually call them this, the snitch, you know, sort of at the at the mm-hmm. center of the drug trade and the DEA and the gray areas in many ways of law enforcement and crime. Yeah, uh, that that story is wonderful. I mean, I think it's as crazy as anything you'll see in, in the Netflix show Narcos. <laughs> um, and I think, you know. As you say, it, it kind of explores the gray areas um, uh, in terms of what's legal and, 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 and what isn't. And I think, you know, if you're interested in business, uh, you know, those gray areas are interesting because it's it's both a way to see, you know, it's, it's, it's entertaining to see people doing bad stuff, but it also shows you kind of what are the bounds of morality and ethics and kind of when business breaks down, you know, um, what happens? Yeah. One of the other fascinating stories, I think, you know, we talk about politics making for strange bed- bedfellows. So does crime in, in some ways. And I think to the story that takes place in, in Utah and Salt Lake City, you have a, you know, extremely religious person teaming up with a, a pretty bad guy in LA and, you know, pulling off something related to biofuels. Didn't see that coming. Yeah. Yeah. Fundamentalist Mormons and uh, Russian uh, accused Russian gangsters, uh, uh, allegedly fabricating biofuels in Utah. It's it's kind of a, a strange concoction. It gets at kind of some of the weirdness around uh, uh, regulation of, of energy and, yeah. and also, again, the, this this weird little subculture um, uh, of this uh, a polygamous Mormon sect. What story really stuck with you? Um, well, I guess the story that stuck with me most uh, – was the was the story about the model train robbery oh, uh, yeah. Austin uh, car story, which is is kind of ridiculous uh, because again the stakes are are quite low here. Uh, it's it's about um, uh, the, the theft of some very small trains. Um, but Austin, uh, I, I don't want to read the I don't want to ruin the whole story, but he basically you know turns detective and tries to solve this mystery and in the process kind of reveals some stuff about his own family. Right, uh, his father is is into model trains, and I think. Also, just the, sort of the nature of, of hobbies. There's also a wonderful main char- uh, character, Trish Philly, who's um, uh, the, the secretary of this uh, model railroad qu- club who becomes, you know, a really effective detective. That's Max Chafkin, the architect of the heist issue. Yeah, and I always love when they do one of these deep dives into an issue. Remember, we did the first heist uh, issue last year. It was really a section. This time, the whole magazine is devoted to it. So really fun to see all the different areas that they went around the globe. You couldn't say that Max Chafkin really stole the issue. I can't believe you did that. Our next reporter tells the tale of what may be one of the most brazen museum heists of all time. It's kind of like a mini comic strip, though, and how it's laid out in the magazine. The way you look at it in the magazine is fascinating, (laughs) but also the tale is very cinematic and and whatnot, so it's a very appropriate way of telling it. Benedict Campbell joins us from Berlin. He's got the story. He was the, the author. I don't think the illustrator, though, right, Benny? You're very talented. not. I can... I can... I cannot draw to save my life. Uh, in, in fact, my kids tell me as much. So uh, I was the, the co-author, Karen Matusek, our legal reporter, helped me on this story. And, but it was a great way of sort of telling the story in a different way, um, because, as you say, it does have that cartoonish element to it. And I think uh, the way the illustrator put it together does a great justice. So, Benny, let's start with what are the big maple leaf coins, because it all revolves around them. 
That's right. So the big maple leaf coin is one of five big coins uh, that were minted by the Royal Canadian Mint, and they are as big as a tire, a car tire, and they weigh 100 kilos, about 220 pounds, solid gold, and very sort of impressive, imposing. I looked at an old clip when they were set up in uh, in the museum. You needed four guys to actually lift it up. It's really heavy. It's big, and it's impressive. And they were all sold. To investors. Originally, the Royal Mint decided let's just make one big flashy coin, sort of as an advertising um, marketing campaign. And then people started coming along and saying, hey, why don't you make a couple more? I think we can sell these. So they made five of them all together. They ended up with investors. One of them ended up with an investor here in Germany in Dusseldorf, and he loaned it to a museum where it sat for a couple of years. And sat, you know, pretty safely because who's going to steal it in part because as you say it's a couple hundred <laughs> pounds and yet behind the scenes leading up to this there's an ocean's 11 type plot to steal this thing walk us through how they did it yeah so you're absolutely right this is not the kind of coin that you can just sort of slip into your jacket and walk out the thing is huge it's heavy it's unwieldy it's you know it's very shiny um, and it's behind bulletproof glass so you really have to put some deep thinking into how you're going to get it out um, but what we discovered while sort of uh, telling the story was in some ways how easy it was to go in get the coin and go out again. So the story as it transpires is the coin sits there for a couple of years behind bulletproof glass in what's called the Bode Museum. It's uh, sort of just down the road here, a complex of uh, several museums, and they have a coin cabinet, and it's sort of the highlight of that coin cabinet, different rooms with coins. And um, one night, uh, three guys show up on the platform nearby, uh, the train platform, and then sort of walk across the platform onto the tracks that pass by uh, the museum. And there's an old overpass there, and they climb up there through a window, go in, break the glass, take the coin, and they're out in 16 minutes. Now, it's seems very simple, but if you sort of dig a little deeper, there's some serious sort of planning that went into it. In fact, they tried it twice before, and uh, they didn't seem to work out, and they didn't make it into the museum. So the third time, uh, they made it in, and what they found was there was one window in the entire museum that didn't have an alarm. And that was a window that had sort of been fickle over the years, and the guards decided, okay, let's just turn it off, because it will always set off a false alarm. So they knew about this one window on the second floor, they knew when the guard was doing his rounds, and so they sort of struck at precisely the right moment and in the right place. What's phenomenal is they took this, but they also walked past, what, very valuable statues and some other artworks uh, and artifacts. They left them. I mean, this is what they wanted. Correct. So these were not sort of gentlemen, uh, sort of bank robbers. Uh, these were people who were after something that was easy enough to sell on. If you, you know, if you if you steal a medieval statue, uh, another coin, uh, something that is of much higher value, of much higher sort of um, artistic value, but it's very difficult to sell. So that's not what they were after. They were after something that they could easily break up. The the value of the gold itself is about three and a half million euros. So quite a lot of money. Um, and uh, so they, they came out of the museum, threw the coin onto the tracks, 
put it into a wheelbarrow, made off with the wheelbarrow down the tracks, and then into the car, and the coin remains gone to this very day. Right, and the and there are a couple funny things or interesting <laughs> things that happen. One is the police kind of slow walk it getting there because they think oh somebody stole a coin, big whoop. <laughs> um, so they don't show up for a while, but then yeah. they clearly come to the uh, the conclusion that this was an inside job that leads them down one path. But as you say, they never found it. They think it was broken up and sold. Yeah, that's right. So I actually went to one of the court hearings. So they did in the end arrest four people who they think are connected to this. So I went to the court hearing to listen to what the what the guards had to say to what the police had to say. And one of the guards was sort of telling how when they discovered the coin had gone missing, they called the police and they said, look, guys, you need to come here quickly. There's a coin missing, but this is a big coin cabinet. And probably the police thought, well, it's the big deal. You, you, you guys probably have hundreds of coins and somebody just slipped it in their pocket. They didn't realize that this was the big coin that had gone missing because probably no Nobody thought this was possible. This was humanly and physically possible to take the coin out. So when they eventually showed up, um, they started asking some questions like, how was it that these three people who had walked down the platform, how was it they would know when the guard did his rounds? How was it they would, that they would know that this particular window was the only window that you could get into? Um, all these kinds of things. And then they quickly started thinking, maybe it was the guard who was on duty that night and they dropped that. But then they sort of poked around uh, inside the museum and they came to another guard who was friends with somebody who they already suspected. And that's how sort of the noose closed around right. these four guys who are now on trial. Right, they're wow. on trial, but they don't know where the gold is. So it, right. I, it should be a fascinating trial to watch without uh, any kind of finding of some of that gold. And that's Benedict Camel. We love talking to him in Berlin. And one of the things I love about the story, you got to check it out in the magazine because they tell it as a comic strip. Yeah, they really do. And what's fun about it is you read this comic strip and you realize, man, this just happened in like 15, 16 minutes that they got this thing done. So one of the fun elements of the heist issue, mm -hmm. Carol, is some graphics that are a little bit of how-tos. This one's <laughs> about how to rob a train. We should say, please don't rob a train. No, don't rob a train. But anyway, we can tell you how to do it. Laura Mian is is in Madrid right now. She's the reporter who wrote this story. So tell us about how you went about it, because it does involve a train, it involves Chile, and it involves copper. That's right. So um, it turns out that copper theft is a major issue in Chile. So Chile is the world's largest producer of that metal. And obviously, um, the amount of copper that's produced in Chilean mines is a great target for, for robbers, for thieves in that part of the world. It turns out as well that mines in northern Chile, they're in the middle of the desert, so, so quite isolated. Um, so again, it makes it, for, it makes for an easy target for the people that want to rob them. So for a while, thieves were robbing the mines themselves. They were breaking into the mines um, and stealing as much copper as they could, putting it either in their backpacks or, you know, more professional, more organized bands would put it uh, in uh, the back of their pickup trucks or even bigger trucks. But as the copper miners, as the companies started started to get more serious about security. They started to hire people that could um, look after the mines 24-7. The thieves uh, came up with a different solution, which was to rob the trains that actually transport the copper from the mines to the nearest port. So we're talking about a few hundred kilometers of unsurveilled desert where the uh, copper th thieves can, can rob that, that copper. 
Well, and one of the things that they discovered was that while wire is more easily transported, stealing slabs can be that much more effective. A little more complicated because they're heavy, but it's led to some interesting ingenuity. Yeah, absolutely. So the traditional way has always been the small-time thieves could go into the mines and uh, steal the, the wires, which are less heavy. They're easy to hide even in a backpack or at the back of, you know, on the track of your car. But actually, that can be sold for about around 100 US dollars. But if you get hold of one slab, or even better, more than one slab, they can be sold at around $500 each on the black market, which means that um, the, the, the thieves had an incentive to get organized, to get a few people together and figure out the way to rob that. Well, and a couple of the tips that you have is you got to do it at night. That's a better idea. But I love one of the... like possible solutions to get these heavy big slabs off as you kind of tie some rope to maybe a giant rock on the ground and then like hop on the train. That's right. So when we found out about this story, we started talking to the local police. And at the time when we started covering that, there still wasn't a special police force to cover that. But at the moment, there is a police force that investigates the copper theft in trains. And they told us that uh, the, the robbers, they prefer full moon nights because they don't have to use the lights of their cars. So just with the light of the moon, they're able to still to, to see those trains coming through the desert, approach them and uh, jump into jump on them and, and steal the copper. So there are different ways in which they do that. That's what policemen have told us. Um, and also we've, we've talked a bit to the drivers of these trains who see the uh, thieves approach, but obviously they can't do anything because, you know, the train is, is going through the desert. So what the thieves do is they approach the train on their pickup trucks. They match the speed of the train. They jump on top of the train, which you can imagine it can be quite dangerous and they can either throw the slabs directly on the desert ground or they can also tie the tie a rope around the slabs and and tie an anchor to that rope so the the anchor kind of drags all these slabs again through to to on top of the desert floor so what happens then is that there's someone on top of the of the train there's someone on a on a pickup truck following that train and picking up the different slabs that that fall on on the desert and so, Laura, one of the big uh, issues here is you got to be able to move it after you steal it. That seems to be getting harder and harder, thankfully, for those of us who are law-abiding citizens. Tell us about the crackdown. That's right. So whenever there's uh, a theft in one of the trains, the first thing that the train drivers do, obviously, is call the police and say, hey, you know, there's been a, a robbery in, on my train. Um, please come and help. They might stop the train. They might keep driving until the nearest port. But then the police really set up lots of roadblocks around the area where the train has been robbed to make sure they can catch these uh, these thieves carrying the, the copper on their pickup truck. So some thieves have been caught after robbing the trains but then the police thinks that the smartest thieves what they're doing is just disappearing into the desert finding a secret spot where they can hide those slabs for a while and so when the police presence or when the police pressure cools off and, and the police uh, stop looking they unbury that that loot and then you know drive to the nearest scrapyard or figure out a way to get that copper to the nearest port or outside of the country and that's Laura Mian she joined us from Madrid but this 
this story is really about trains, but it's also about the copper business and how valuable that commodity is. Yeah, exactly. So talk about a dose of reality, a riveting story about someone who seems to have simultaneously conned two of the most dangerous organizations in the world. Jason, we're talking about Colombian drug cartels and the U.S. government. We are indeed. And this story, I have to say, this was one that I could not put down. And and I want to start our conversation with Zeke Fox, who wrote the story, with a quote that actually is at the end of the story. A story has three sides, your side, my side, and the truth. And no one is lying. That makes this that much more complicated. So, Zeke, tell us about Baruch Vega. He is, by all appearances, one of the most successful fashion photographers in Miami. It's the turn of the millennium. And he's got a penthouse on Miami Beach. He's a regular at all the hottest restaurants, always surrounded by the models that he photographs. He's got his own jet. He seems like uh, he's on top of the world. But what all his fashion friends and his family don't know is that he is secretly working for the U.S. government as a kind of freelance spy. Okay, but that's not it, right? He's doing that, but it seems to be he's also friendly with the drug cartels or the yes. drug kingpins. So his Columbia. job for the government was to infiltrate the drug cartels, sort of insinuate himself into their social circles, and then to gather information and hopefully bring them in to uh, become informants. Okay. But what the government didn't know is that Vega while he was meeting with these guys, while the government was watching him closely, was convincing them that he could take care of all their legal problems, fix their cases, if they would just pay him millions of dollars in bribe money. So he'd go to these kingpins and say, I know you got a big problem, but I know some people. Give me $10 million, $20 million. I'm going to make it go away. And they did it. Or we think they did it. So the crazy thing was, these kingpins who did it, they did it. Yeah. And it seemed like it worked. Like once they paid him, they would be able to travel to Miami. They'd go to Disney World. (laughs) One of them threw a big party on a yacht. Guys who were wanted for murder would just get waved through customs. And this, since this happened uh, years ago now... Tons of information about this has all come out in trials, in internal DEA documents, and I was able to interview a lot of uh, FBI agents, DEA agents, prosecutors, defense lawyers involved in this whole case, because the whole thing is just so crazy that uh, it's uh, it's really hard to believe. Right. Because obviously, one of the things that happened fairly early on was that he was clearly working with... Law enforcement officials, mm-hmm. they they were endorsing at least some of what he was doing. Right. I mean, one thing I learned while researching this story is that all of these negotiations between the government and drug traffickers are just a lot more gray area than than you would think. These, The way it would work was that Vega would meet with these criminals. He'd give them his pitch and he'd say... Pay me this money, but you're still going to have to meet with the DEA and you're going to have to sign a standard you know, cooperation agreement. And that's a little risky, right? I mean, in, 
in yeah. Colombia, especially at that time, informants were getting killed all the time. So, but Vega would say, don't worry about it. You're not really going to have to inform on anyone. Those bribes take care of it. This is just sort of for show. And by the way, when you go meet with these DEA agents or prosecutors, don't mention the bribes. Like, that's illegal. Keep right. it secret. Right. So these guys would have paid Vega. Then they'd be meeting with DEA agents and prosecutors thinking that their case had been fixed. Now, do the DEA agents and prosecutors know that's what they think? I mean, it's that's one of the things that I was uh, looking into. But when they met with the DEA agents, they basically were forced to rat out some of their friends, correct? In order so, to get the plea agreement where they would maybe get a lesser sentence or what have you, they had to rat out friends. Right. This is like getting into the tricky part. So when you sign one of these agreements, it's not like it all happens at once. You're sort yeah. of in negotiations with the DEA. That might last for a couple of years, at which point you don't... So you don't immediately know that you've been had. And in the meantime, you're going around to all your friends in Colombia mm-hmm. and you're saying, guess what? I got this guy, Baruch. It's, it's a miracle. I paid him millions of dollars and he took care of me. Like, look at this. Here I am in Miami. I'm, I'm free. I can travel all I want. I mean, I think this guy really does have these high up connections. And the crazy thing is, is that... Some of these conversations between the drug traffickers were secretly recorded and have since come out and in court. So you can see them talking and that they really believe that this Vega guy can work miracles. Well, and to say the least, this is a high wire act that where he is walking between law Mm -hmm. (laughs) and and some really bad people. And yet, I mean, hopefully this isn't a spoiler. He's still around. You talk to him. Like, here he is all these years later being like, look what I did. Right. I mean, when I would track down these uh, retired law enforcement officials, a lot of them said, Vega's still alive? Wow. (laughs) That's pretty cool. Good for him. Um, Because uh, many of the informants who worked with him were assassinated. And at one point, Vega heard from the FBI and from his underworld connections that there was a price on his head too. Right. So, but that didn't stop him. He kept running the scheme uh, even after that. But until there was a sting operation ultimately and he got caught and he got arrested and put in jail. Right. So the story opens with Vega just back from a photo shoot in Cancun, I believe, partying with some of his photography and fashion friends when there, his doorbell rings, and one of his drug trafficker clients is at the door. Not too weird for him. He's used to that. But the guy seems to have a lot of questions about, hey, remember that when I paid you that $7 million? Like, who did you bribe with that? And Vega says, oh, don't worry about it. Money's gone. I spent it. Like, not, not a big deal. But this guy sort of suspiciously wants to keep talking about it. Drug trafficker leaves. New group of people show up. It's the FBI, and they arrest him. And he, Vega says, "Hey, I did this all for the DEA. Talk to my talk to my guys there. This is all legal." They say, "No way. Throw him in jail." Um, and at the time when this happened, Vega was got some coverage, and he would go to the press and try and make the plead his case and say, "Oh, right. I'm such a great." 
informant. Look at all the good work I've done. This case is really unfair. And it was sort of a mystery. Like, why would the FBI arrest someone if they really were working for the DEA? And the FBI agents even raided the DEA headquarters to get all the documents related to him. So that's the sort of mystery that I tried to unravel right. in this story. But fast forward, the, add to the mystery, the case was ultimately dropped and he was set free. Right. The case was dropped and he was set free, but the prosecutors did not say we were wrong. Right. In fact, they said we were right. He did do this. But we're just not going to prosecute right. him for it. Yeah, that happens all the time. Well, and the like thought crazy. that you lay out is that they, a lot of people would have a lot of proverbial egg on their face if the truth really came out of who knew what, when, and how, and who got paid and who didn't. And this guy was really at the center of knowing all of this stuff. Right. I mean, he could have testified about all sorts of ways that the DA worked, all sorts of embarrassing things, because just this is just one of them. At the peak of his scheme, he was holding conventions for <laughs> drug traffickers and DEA agents in, in Panama City, in Panama, because he had so many people that wanted to work with him that he couldn't do it individually. So he had DEA agents flying into Panama City, meeting with all the narcos, and then going out to strip clubs to party together. Right. And this is definitely not something that the government would want uh, right. everyone talking about. You mean there's not a handbook for the <laughs> DEA that's like, go to a foreign country with a bunch of drug dealers, party with them, and that's cool. That's the way we do it. Right. I mean, some of these traffickers were even fugitives from justice at the time, and they weren't arrested. They were allowed to just go back yeah. to Colombia and go about their business. So I learned that the DEA is not, or law enforcement is not like a monolith. Right. Like you have different agents right. running different kinds of operations in different places. And while in theory, everything's supposed to be controlled by headquarters, in reality, the, to make these cases, they have to do some pretty weird things. So that's Zeke Fox who wrote this story, as he said, or has his character said in the story, Baruch Vega, three sides to a story and they all tell the truth. Absolutely. I really love this. You never really know where this story is going. And as you say, at the end, you're not really sure what the truth actually is. When we think about security, digital and cybersecurity, we think about where we work, Jason. We think about where we keep our money, where we invest, our home computer systems. And also, I guess we should think about the hotels we stay at. Yeah, when you rock up to the front desk, you're, you're not necessarily thinking like, all right, I'm very, very vulnerable yeah. uh, here. Pat Clark's got a great story in the magazine, a ride-along story in many ways. So tell us about what you saw, because you saw it with your own eyes. Yeah, I walked into a hotel with some security experts and, and watched them as they went about identifying and, and sort of beginning to exploit the vulnerabilities that they saw. Um, and it started really from the very moment we walked into the hotel. One of the guys I was with walked along the sort of the front desk while one of the other hackers was checking in. And he noticed that the, at the end of the front desk, there were a bunch of computers that were used to you know, take reservations, swipe credit cards. I don't know if it was a chip or a swipe, but to process credit card payments. And all the way over there at the end of the front desk, there were machines where nobody was sitting. Um, 
you know, the screensaver wasn't, the screens weren't locking. So theoretically, he could have reached, oh, he conceivably could have reached over the counter and, you know, slipped a little USB drive into the end of the machine and all of a sudden been logging, you know, every keystroke that the machine made. And apparently that's just one opening within a hotel environment, right? That people can access a bunch of information. And that's what these guys were looking for. Yeah, it's all over the place from the hotel website to, you know, hotel Wi-Fi, which is a very big one. Yeah. Um, you know, if you're using hotel Wi-Fi, and it depends, you know, you can configure um, your sort of Wi-Fi setup in better or worse ways. One of the interesting things is, you know, even five or ten years ago when it was more common that you had to pay for Wi-Fi in a hotel, there was actually a higher degree of security around that because you were getting a individualized Wi-Fi access point, right? Uh, because you were paying for it and then they were giving you some kind of credential which was linked to your name and your credit card and all of that. Now there's sort of a, you know, everybody wants everything immediate and free and easy and Wi-Fi has become no longer something we think that we should pay for when we're in hotels, but something that should be part of, you know, what the hotel provides us. Right. So what you get instead is in, in this hotel, there was a completely public Wi-Fi, no login even, you know, and a, a much better system would be based on your room and there would be a password. Even better than that really would be based on your email address or maybe a social media account. But something so um, every single user on the Wi-Fi has their own credential. Um, and, and one of the reasons why that's important is – and this is, one of the, this is one of the things that the guys I was with did – is they created a very simple way with just with their – one of their took out their cell phone and created a Wi-Fi access point with his phone that was named after the hotel. And he, he said, well, you know, if you really want to be kind of a jerk, you say, you know, name of the hotel and then free or name in the name of the hotel fast, right? Yeah. <laughs> right? To even, yeah. be even more yeah. enticing. But, um, but you see it when you get into a hotel, right? And you go on and you'll see multiple names and you're like, well, what's the real one? Immediately. Assuming safe one. Within minutes, I think there were six devices immediately had just jumped over. And and it wasn't people pulling it down and looking for the right one. It was their devices automatically find, yeah. finding his Wi-Fi network. Now, if he had been really out to get guests, and we did this sort of on the basis of – we're not going to do anything illegal, obviously. Right. These were good guys. These are good guys. These are in, these the, are white hats. These are white hats. Right. The hotel is a client. We had permission from the general manager of the hotel to go in and, and mess around a little bit, but we weren't going to compromise a guest in any way, right? We and, and and there were some other things we weren't going to do. So that the you know if he had gone in in a more kind of serious way, he would have come in with a device called a Wi-Fi pineapple, which sort of would do the same thing, but kind of automate the process of um, using this initial exploit of tricking people's phones or right. laptops into switching onto this sort of evil Wi-Fi network to then start listening into all the communications that they're doing, right? And if you send an unencrypted password somewhere, you know, the the, the guy over here with the pineapple in his backpack is going to know the, the, you know, and and from there, you know, the, the possibilities kind of continue in, in – much of what these guys showed me, you know, the idea is you're looking for an access point or a door, um, and then you see where that leads. Right. And maybe, you know, being able to um, snoop on the communications, my devices, is, you know, whatever emails I'm sending or whatever else I'm doing, maybe somewhere something that I do is going to 
give this guy more access. Right. Well, isn't the Holy Grail, though, what they call, is it the PMS, the property management system of the hotel? Is that what everybody's trying to get into? Oh, is that where all the information well, is? Well, that's what we were trying to get into, right? Okay. So, I mean, I think you, you think of the hotel, and this is one of the things which is very hard for hotels to secure against, is – uh, you know, the most common hack against hotels is just email exploits, right? Somebody sends you a link and maybe it's like, you know, here's the list of the names of the people who I want to book into your hotel next month. Mm-hmm. And that downloads, you know, some malicious software, which then starts logging credit card numbers. Maybe it's even simpler and it's just an email that says, hey, you know, uh, you owe my company $20,000 for the services I provided you. And then some somebody, right? So this is very basic, just trying to steal money from the hotel. Right. Right, and then on the next level, there the, there are ways to use the hotel as a conduit to hack into the guest devices, and and the sort of history of that is it's been it's a you can target individual guests. You know, if you have nuclear scientists staying in a hotel, or right, right. you know, other people carrying sensitive corporate information, espionage, yeah. corporate espionage yeah. by all means. You yeah. know, I mean, governments. The, the, yeah. You know, you use the hotel as a way to start spying on people. A third sort of category is all of the information that the hotel stores about the people who come and stay right. there, right? And so that's what um, you know. breaking into the property management system would allow you to do. That's Pat Clark. And what a fascinating story, right? You go into a hotel room, you kind of, I guess, think you're pretty secure. You use the hotel's Wi-Fi. But folks, this story will make you think twice about that. It will. Technology takes many forms mm-hmm. in a hotel. This story, among the most read when it hit the Bloomberg, about the polygamist accused of scamming the U.S. out of half a billion dollars. This was one of my wait what moments. Totally. (laughs) So, Jason, you described it as a cinematic uh, read. Spot on. Absolutely. It really is. And David Voriakos, he is, if you aren't familiar with your work, he's one of the most celebrated, candidly, legal reporters out there. Helps us understand Mm -hmm. these complicated cases. This is one, David, you're here with us in New York, and I have to say, this one took some twists and turns that I didn't anticipate. A different sort of story for you in, in some ways. Legal underpinnings, but the characters here, amazing. It has some great characters. Essentially, it's uh, centered around uh, a Mormon uh, sect in Utah known as the Order or the Davis County Cooperative Society and two brothers, Jacob and Isaiah Kingston. And they ran a biofuels company uh, that the Internal Revenue Service said engaged in a massive fraud over several years. And their partner in this, according to the government, is an Armenian immigrant, Lev Derman, who's been accused of several crimes over the years and been acquitted. And what uh, the government says is that over the period of several years, they um, they defrauded the IRS out of $511 million in biofuel tax credits, and they then laundered $134 million of that to Turkey and lived a very lavish lifestyle. And um, there's a lot of witness intimidation alleged in this case and um, some quite colorful characters uh, as witnesses along the way. So wait. This is where the wait what comes in. All right, so you go from the Mormon to half a billion dollars to scamming the government. Tell us a little bit about the order, because I don't know that everybody's familiar with it. Well, the order is a polygamous sect, and there are um, uh, people have several wives and um, many, many children, and it's a hierarchical society in which has a prophet who determines where people work, who they'll marry, 
um, essentially how they live their lives. And they own um, more than 100 businesses in the West and generate hundreds of millions of dollars uh, in revenue. And that money is supposed to be um, shared only with uh, the the order. But in this case, the government claims that uh, these brothers, Paul and Isaiah Kingston, or Jacob and Isaiah Kingston, excuse me, uh, kept a lot of that money for themselves and lived a very um, lavish lifestyle, uh, as did Lev Derman. This is the allegation. And uh, Lev Derman, for instance, drove a $1.7 million Bugatti. Right. Uh, the Kingston brothers drove uh, fancy cars and uh, Jacob Kingston lived in quite a mansion, all of which is against the general ethos of the order. Right. And so you have this. We were we mm-hmm. were talking with Max Chafkin earlier about this idea that, you know, politics makes strange bedfellows. And, and in this case, maybe a heist does uh, as well. How did these guys even get together in the first place, the Kingstons and Lev Derman? Uh, that has not been fully spelled out in this case, but they met in February of 2011 at a biofuels conference right. in Las Vegas. And um, the Kingstons uh, created uh, biofuels, which could then be mixed with um, diesel. Um, and uh, there's a federal law that's about a decade old that encourages the use of biofuels um, at increasing amounts as the years go by. And so all the big refineries and all the big oil companies are required to use these biofuels, which is what the Kingstons produce. Now, the government says that they didn't actually produce what they said they did, and they engaged in a very elaborate um, kind of daisy chain of moving uh, materials uh, around the U.S. and um, in the Caribbean to make it appear that they were selling products they said they were producing that they were not actually producing. And um, so Derman... Uh, so not producing, but getting the tax credits, which getting, That is get correct. Not really producing wealthy. what they said they were producing yeah. and still getting the tax credits. And that's the fraud. That's the heart of the fraud that's alleged. The Kingston said, though, no, this isn't what happened. The Kingston said they produced everything they said they did. They deserved these credits. And Derman said, Derman has, they've all pleaded not guilty. Um, Jacob Kingston's mother and wife are also under indictment. They're going to trial in late July in Utah. At Derman, one of his wives, <laughs> right? That's right. Derman uh, has asked the judge uh, to be tried separately, saying that he's not involved in all of this uh, fraudulent activity with uh, the Kingstons, and that still has to be determined. And and just one other thing is the Kingstons have also asked the judge to bar any reference uh, to. Uh, the order or right. to polygamy because they think it's prejudicial hmm. and it's a real hot topic in Utah. Well, and, and that gets to, it feels like an important point here, which is that this is also very tied up in, in sort of the culture and the politics yeah. of Utah and Salt Lake City, right? Right. Um, for a long time, uh, this kind of polygamy has uh existed in plain sight, even though it's been illegal for more than a century. And uh, the order believes that they are the subject of intense persecution, um, and uh, they've been discriminated against, and that they are living their lives. Um, The government has alleged that there is a whole practice of cheating uh, 
cheating the U.S. government, um, not paying taxes, engaging in uh, welfare fraud. And uh, the order has 10,000 people. They have their own uh, bank. They've got their own business system. They have their right. own sort of right. uh, system of discipline. And one of the under bellies of this case is the government says that a lot of witnesses have been intimidated mm -hmm. physically or financially or emotionally. Um, and uh, so it's going to be kind of a, a highly charged trial in Utah that will be very closely watched. That's David Voriakos. And you know, Jason, when this story hit the Bloomberg terminal, it was among the most read because, I mean, look at it from so many different angles. It was fascinating. You called it cinematic. Well, it is in part because you have this cult, essentially, mm -hmm. this Mormon cult, a sect uh, on the outskirts, literally and figuratively there in Salt Lake City. And then, as I said in the interview, politics makes strange bedfellows. So does a heist. So, Jason, thieves, we know they come in all shapes and sizes. Their targets also come in all shapes and sizes and maybe in all plants, animals or minerals. And in this case, we're talking about plants. There are a lot of victims in this heist <laughs> yes. issue. But in this case, we're talking about the trees, redwoods, in fact. Sarah McBride joins us from San Francisco, near where so many of those beautiful trees mm. grow. So tell us how you came upon this story, Sarah. Well, um, I knew the heist issue was coming up, and I was thinking, what is something that gets stolen in plain sight uh, outdoors? And I was just kind of looking through what might get stolen from national parks, and I realized that sadly this type of theft is not uncommon, and also that the rangers are taking steps to try to stop it. And it's at parks across the country right. in one form or another. Well, the victim in this story, as Jason mentioned, it's a tree. And you talk specifically mm -hmm. about burl, to be exact. Tell us exactly right. what that is. Okay, I had no idea what burl was yeah. until I started uh, reporting this story. But redwoods and some other types of trees develop these weird kind of protrusions that grow out from the side of the tree. They look like little round knobs, but sometimes they're not so little. Sometimes they're just maybe a foot or so across. Sometimes they're 10 feet in diameter, so huge. And the wood that grows in these protrusions called burls is a little different to the wood in the rest of the tree. It often has very fine markings inside to the point where people who know a lot about wood will look at it and say, oh, that's feather burl, that's bird's eye burl. There are different types of distinctive markings, and it's prized. If somebody has, say, a coffee table, made from redwood burl, that's thousands and thousands of dollars. And so we're talking about redwoods, which are mm -hmm. well known to, to many people for their majesty. And also people like to quite literally get a piece of those trees. There's a big trade, a, a tourist trade, in fact, uh, that's involved here. And that's part of the reason people steal this, right? Right, right. So... Redwood, I learned, has two different types. There's uh, old-growth redwood, which takes hundreds and hundreds of years to develop, sometimes, you know, a thousand years or more. And then there's second-growth redwood, which grows up much more quickly, and it's younger trees. And so a lot of the redwood that is legally for sale is this newer redwood, 
and it's perfectly legal to cut down redwood on private property. Where you run into problems is if it's this type of redwood that has taken hundreds of years to develop, that has a type of majesty and dimension that you can't find in the newer trees. And really the only place where a lot of that is left is our parks, our national and state parks. So people who really want this older type of redwood can be tempted to go to remote areas in national and state parks, mostly in California, and simply chop down pieces mm. of tree, or in this case, the more valuable burl, when they think nobody's looking. Well, it's interesting, too. And, and if they're doing that, they're breaking the law. But you also talk yes. about social media and how that has played into people wanting to go after things that you find in nature. Right, right. So um, this is a problem for all sorts of plants. It's particularly played a role in some related thefts in parks on the West Coast of these small succulents, Mm -hmm. uh, in particular a type of succulent called Dudleya. And um, those have become wildly popular in the last decade or so in Asia. And people see people sending out posts on Instagram of their Dudleya collections and they want them. And I bet you 20 years ago, nobody in many parts of the world had even heard of Dudleya. And now people prize them. They really only grow on the coast of California, Mexico, basically um, what we would think of as the West Coast. And people have been flying here from Asia, just gathering thousands of these and shipping them back to Asia where they might survive six months or a year and then probably die because the climate isn't ideal for them there. And um, the busts in uh, the past couple of years have generally involved natives from Korea, China, Japan, and thousands and thousands of these Dudleyas. And Mm -hmm. I think it's similar with Redwood. People kind Mm -hmm. of might see a Facebook post of something nice, a nice uh, slab of burl, and perhaps might want that themselves. That's Sarah McBride, normally looking after venture capital, but this one... This is no ordinary story by a long shot. It involves a Boeing engineer turned addict turned bank robber. It's part of the heist issue, and yet it's a story that's much bigger than a bank robbery or a series of bank robberies. Josh Dean, one of our faves, back with us. He has this story. How did you come across this in the first place? I was looking for a a heist, well, specifically for the heist issue, and I was looking for a different kind of bank robbery story, and I wanted to find someone who was really good at bank robbery. (laughs) You know, usually you hear about, like, the one big heist where someone gets a million dollars, or you hear about the, like, petty heist where they get caught after one or two times. And I was like, what would it look like to find someone who was really good at it? But what happened is when I reached out to this guy, made contact with this guy, it, it took a very different turn. I mean, it was, it is also, it is about a very successful bank robber, but that's not really what it's about. So the guy is Anthony Hathaway. Tell us his story. So he was was pretty successful at one point. He was an engineer at Boeing who was um, at the peak in charge of galley design on the 747-8 program. So the biggest jets that Boeing makes. (laughs) Flying around the world in business class, you know, meeting with airlines literally on every continent. And uh, he got addicted to opiates. How'd that happen? 
he hurt his back playing roller hockey. So, and, and this is in the early 2000s. So, I mean, I think it's easy now to, to think like, of course, everybody knows that, that you can get hooked. But as he explains it back then, like his doctor never said that. He just right. said, here's something that will help. And it really did help. He had back surgery. He started taking pills. And it was the only thing that stopped the pain. And he was like, wow, this is a miracle. I can go back to work. Because there were times in which he would like couldn't get out of bed. Right. But then over time, what happens? Your body gets addicted. He's still not really having, you know, his doctors, I'm sure, aware of the problem. But it's then once you're addicted, it's not a conversation you want to have openly. You're probably embarrassed about it. So then you just become an addict who's trying to function in the world. Well, you say then he had a second surgery and then he started doing things like snorting it and smoking the oxy. Yeah, because your tolerance builds up. So he's got a regular prescription. And I think this is probably the story of every addict who comes by it, honestly, which I mean your doctor gives you pills for a real problem is that like your tolerance builds up, you need more and more, then you start getting them on the black market and then you want a quicker high. And then eventually what happens is that you're trying not to crash. Like you're just right. trying not to not be high. Right. And, and you need money. Right. And <laughs> you know, he's able to sort of go along with it and function in his job, you know, to the point where he's overseas and he's essentially like showing up to pharmacies and being like, Hey, I lost my pills. Here's my pursuit. Like he's able to sort of right. finesse it for a while. And he's a Boeing engineer. So, you know, he said he would show up in like Switzerland, for instance, and just go into a state pharmacy with his Boeing ID and, and a pres- legitimate prescription and just say, Hey, I forgot my pills and who are, they're not going to doubt him. Right. Yeah. And he was doing his job for a long time, but, but eventually, you know, you can't do it. Your job, the limits of what you can do once you're an addict, you're going to run up against the wall eventually. He did it, though, at one point level with Boeing, right? And talked about his addiction with the company. And they gave him a leave. I think they were very good to him. Yeah. And, and more and more companies do this now. They were willing to let him get treatment. He went to treatment. And then the day he got out of treatment, he went and bought pills again. Because right. he said, you really need you know two or three months if you're going to get off of them. And so – he comes upon this idea of essentially starting to rob banks. It's like sort of incredible. <laughs> yeah, I mean, desperation at desperate times. At the, yeah, he, he, so he's, he, in 2010, uh, Purdue Pharma switches the formula for OxyContin. And that's really when the heroin epidemic starts because the pills are no longer snortable or crushable. And he starts doing heroin like a lot of Americans did. And then his problem really got out of control. He ran out of money and he lost his job because he, well, he robbed the first bank poorly got arrested, was not convicted. With his son. With his son, yes. I mean, there are a lot of sad elements of the story. Yeah. Was was not convicted, was let go again. And then, you know, then he's in really bad shape. He gets fired from his job. He says, I need money to support my habit. And also my mother, who he's living with his mother, who's very ill at the time, he starts robbing banks. And because he's an engineer, he's very good at it. Right. So he doesn't just run out and, and run into a bank with a gun. He doesn't want to carry a weapon. But he thinks like, I know they're going to give me the money if I ask for it. And if I'm fast enough and if I'm smart enough, I shouldn't get caught. And he got away with it for over a year. Yeah, he understands all the – he studies it. He understands the elements of it. He's literally, you know, sort of playing it out with his mom who is disapproving, but at the same time – Dependent on him. Right. Yeah, and in poor health and independent on him, and I think, you know, also probably desperate for money and doesn't want him to leave and doesn't want him to go to jail. And so, yeah, he starts practicing using the microwave timer. Like I can get in and out in under 45 seconds. I should be fine. He like times the lights. He puts his car in a specific location. He looks at the exits. He picks the bank specifically based on traffic patterns and things, all the things that you would do if you were trying to get away with it. And he robs 30 banks in 14 months and, and almost one a week for a period. Cause there's a break in the middle 
occasionally when he would do well, he would take his mom to the casino and they, they hit the jackpot at the slots once. Well, it's funny about you saying, you know, he thought he did, you know, did well or was hoping to do well. He really thought he was going to rob a bank once, get a ton of money and be done. But that's not really how it worked. It doesn't work that way anymore. I mean, I think the heists of the future are going to be digital heists because banks yeah. just don't keep cash. I mean, right. do you carry cash? I don't really carry cash anymore. Right. And when you go in and... and Rob a counter, you might get. He was getting like a thousand, two thousand, three thousand bucks. Which, if you have a heroin problem, that's not going to last you very long. So then it becomes like I remember in the one point we were calling this like the blue collar bank robber. I mean, it was like almost like a working really hard robbing banks yeah. to make a living wage in Seattle. I should say he lives in Seattle, which is not a cheap place to live. Right. So yeah, um, you're just not going to get ten thousand, twenty thousand. He just kept hoping that was going to happen, even though I'm sure intellectually he knew. <laughs> And what's his mindset as he's going along, as he's in the midst of this streak? What's he thinking? Or is he not? Well, in the beginning, I think he was just thinking, I don't want to get caught. But then, and I've done a few bank robbery stories, and almost all of bank robbers tell me that it's like one of the best adrenaline rushes they've ever got. So I think he got somewhat addicted to that part of it as well. But by the time the streak starts coming to an end, he's making mistakes after 27, 28, 29. He says he was getting really desperate and he kind of knew the end was near and he needed help. So, you know, of course he didn't want to get caught, but when he got caught, he was like, I think this is what needed to happen. So maybe subconsciously I wasn't trying as hard. Well, they talk about really hitting a bottom and that might've ultimately been it. So he goes to jail and he's got a detox in jail. Not pretty. No, in King County Jail, which he said he's in a room with 20 people, one toilet, and you know he's just vomiting for days on end. And, and all they would give him was – so there's no program. I don't know how it is now. At that time, there was no program in the jail. So yeah. literally all they were giving him was Advil. So he's just in like the worst misery of his life trying to detox. Comes out the other side okay, but he said that was some of the worst times. I mean, a jail is always a bad place, but when you're detoxing, I don't think – it's a particular kind of misery. Because he's so sick. At one point, they, they send him to solitary confinement just to get him out of the general population. Probably upsetting the other inmates, right? right? Yeah, so he's in solitary. And, and then he, you know, once he got his mind straight, he was determined to do as little time as possible because he wanted to get back to his family. So he spent two years fighting the charges and yeah. negotiating. Is he still in jail? He is. He's getting out um, maybe as soon as the summer, definitely by December 23rd. Josh, I feel like this story has so many different moving parts. And it really, you know, you talk about his opiate addiction, you know, robbing banks. I mean, now he's on a mission to kind of go after the drug companies. Yeah. He's so obviously the main thing he wants to do when he gets out is get back on his feet, figure out. Yeah. Imagine he's 50 now, so he's got to rebuild his life. I don't think he's going to probably get a job at Boeing, but maybe it would be good PR for them. But so he's got to get his life back, find a way to make money get a house. But also he's like angry. He feels like I should, I should be punished for what I did. I robbed banks. Obviously I've done my time now, but like I would, didn't become an addict because I wanted to, I wasn't like going out partying. I like went to my doctor and asked for pills for the pain and the pain eventually that is what got me addicted. And so he thinks he wants to join the fight, you know, whether that's a class action lawsuit or, or advocacy or, you know, I think a lot of different ways it could play out. But certainly he's angry at Purdue Pharma and the opiate industry. Or write a book. <laughs> yeah, maybe write a book. I mean, there's also this element that while you say it wasn't large amounts of money, it was pretty easy to rob these banks. I mean, yeah. there were branches <laughs> that he robbed multiple times. Yeah, many that he robbed two times, a few that he robbed three times. Right. Well, because what he, his mom had worked as a teller at one point and she told him, we're, t- we're trained to give money over. Like it, right. It's not worth our lives to, to resist a robber who might have a weapon. So the policy in banks is to give you the money. Now, there's not a lot of money in the drawer, so that, that's a relatively low-risk prospect for banks. Yeah. So he just knew if I'm fast and I go in there, they're going to give me the money. This is pretty easy. And 
you know, he thinks if he had his mind straight that he could have gotten yeah. away with it basically forever. And talk about his masks, because that's something <laughs> that sort of carries through. And, and the ingenuity, I dare yeah. say, of figuring out, like, how to do it in a way, like, that was another thing that he worked on that sort of befuddled the police. And, and the police were like, bravo. Yeah, they know, thought... They, the were, they were kind of enamored with him. Yeah, well, they thought he was multiple... Because he changed his disguise a few times, they thought he was multiple bank robbers. So they weren't sure if they were chasing one guy or two or three. Yeah. So basically, you know, as he explained it, it's not just the mask. You can't look conspicuous going into the bank. So if you're holding like a Richard Nixon mask, you're yeah. people are going to be like, why are you holding a mask walking into a bank? So he designed things that were like a t-shirt with the back cut off. So it was just on the front and he would pull it up over his head with eye holes cut out or a headband, which was a t-shirt sleeve with eye holes that he would pull down over his face. So the idea being, of course it looks kind of ridiculous, but I can wear it into the bank and not look funny. And when I'm done, I can pull it right back down and no one will notice. So I, I just, just tuck it under my just shirt. Just walk right out. Because you also can't run out looking like you're... Right. So you want to walk in looking calm and you Sauter want to walk out. out. Not like I'm teaching people how to rob banks. <laughs> well, but he was also lucky. It was Seattle and it was raining a lot. So he could use an umbrella to kind of keep himself... Watch the cameras. Exactly. Yeah, so I know. it kind of worked out. Wouldn't work as well in Phoenix. I mean, he really thought it through. And I agree with you that he was able to do it with such frequency. It was pretty remarkable. Right. That's reporter Josh Dean. And no ordinary story by a long shot involving this accomplished Boeing engineer, became an addict, and then became a bank robber. Jason, you know, we talk about it. This really is a story of addiction. It is indeed so compelling in so many ways. And throughout this whole issue, we've talked about heists, you know, some lighthearted, others not so mm-hmm. much. This is a reminder. There's really a human element to all of it. And that wraps up Bloomberg Business Week's weekend podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Be sure to tune into Bloomberg Business Week Radio live Monday through Friday starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. And if you can't catch us live, get our daily podcast for the ride home. Subscribe at iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And of course, you can get this week's edition of the magazine. That is on newsstands now. We'll be back right here next week at the same time with more from the heist issue. This is Bloomberg.